1998, I actually became a Christian. And it was actually going from this, I was during the summer, I just finished grade 11, and I was going into grade 12, my final year of high school. And I was convinced that when I went back to my high school, virtually every single person was going to become a Christian. But to my shock, some people rejected the message. Uh, how could you, and in my mind I didn't understand, how could you reject the greatest message in the world? Well, today's text that Dan just read for us actually gets at the heart of that. It actually covers this, this dilemma. Why is it that some people reject the message and others receive the message of the gospel? So what we're going to do this morning, or this afternoon, whatever time you're watching this, is in verses 20 through 24, we're going to look at the rejection of Jesus. And then in verses 25 and 30, the reception of Jesus. So the rejection of Jesus and the reception of Jesus. That's our outline for today. What we're going to do is actually unpack that using those points. So I'd ask though, right before we dive into that, will you pray with me one last time? Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment. Thank you for everyone that is tuning in online. Lord, you know every detail of their lives. You know the, the stresses that they're feeling. You know the, what weighs on their minds even now. Lord, we pray that they would be encouraged, Lord, that they would be lifted out of the situation, as it were, for a moment to get a glimpse of your character, of your goodness. We pray that you would work in such a way to turn our affections, our thinking, upon you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a bit shocking. I don't know what you thought when Dan just read that text. But it's a bit shocking at first glance. Because why is Jesus really upset with these random towns? Did you notice that? I mean, they must have done something really bad for in order to Jesus to be so angry as he is. I don't know if you read that, you might have thought, oh, I've never even heard of either of these, any of these places, especially the Chorazin and the whatever, the other one, Bethsaida. But for whatever reason, Jesus is pretty ticked off. Glad I don't live in one of those towns. Whew. All right. Let's step back and let's try to remember what's going on here. Remember, this is the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew has already, he's already recorded a, a number of events that Jesus has done that are supernatural. Some of his miracles, right? He's, he gave sight to the blind, healed paralyzed people, even brought the dead back to life. And these miracles, all of these miracles, they occurred in the Galilee region, which is not very large. If you go there today, it's still to this day... Uh, for instance, you can actually walk from Capernaum, that's one of the places he mentioned, to Chorazin in just a few hours. And 
Bethsaida is just on the other side of the Jordan. Not very big. Nonetheless, these three Jewish towns were the most prominent in that region. But don't miss this. These towns are where Jesus did the majority of his miracles. So think about it this way. If this is where the Lord spent most of his energy, you would think these would be the spots where Jesus would have the greatest influence and the most disciples, right? But it's not. And here's what's fascinating. Here's what's fascinating. There is no record of the people being hostile to Jesus in either, in any of these towns that he lists. They don't try to drive Jesus and his disciples out of town. They don't mock him and ridicule him. So, actually what they do is, if you read, as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, Matthew's already shown that they were flocking to Jesus. There was widespread enthusiasm. He was the talk of the town. People actually admired Jesus. We've never seen someone speak with so much authority. So then why, why does Jesus bring this judgment upon them? They're not hostile to him. Why is he being cranky, it seems like, with them? One reason. It's because they did not repent. Even though they've been eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles, even though God had actually visited them in a special, extraordinary way through Christ, they still refused to repent. They would not turn away from their sin and turn to God. You see, the miracles, guys, the miracles had a purpose. Jesus didn't perform these miracles, cleansing lepers, raising the dead to get a few eyebrow raises, maybe a few oohs and ahs from a crowd, these were intended to drive people, to propel people to repentance. What does Jesus say in Matthew 4? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, right? And you know, some people did. Some people did repent and follow Jesus, while others got their nose out of joint. They weren't about to follow this guy, Jesus. They certainly didn't like the message that he was preaching either, so they weren't about to turn their lives over to him. So how does the Lord then respond to their lack of repentance? I hope you can hear his tone. It is woe to you. Listen, you reject the king and there are dire consequences. If you refuse to turn to Jesus, there are dire consequences. Look look again. It's the case here with these two Jewish cities that we first see in, in Galilee, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Look in Matthew, if you're following along, in verse 20, he says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
It's peculiar how Jesus, I don't know if you noticed that when I just read, but Jesus uses what's called a counterfactual argument. Do you know what I mean by that? A counterfactual argument? A counterfactual argument is when you state something that didn't actually occur in real life, but if it did, then there would be the logical result. Jesus says, I didn't go to Tyre and Sidon, but if I did, they'd repent. Why speak like this? Why pick these two towns? Were these the last bastions of moral purity and the fear of God and, and Jesus' day? Well, it's quite the opposite. They represent arrogant opposition to God and his people. Although there was a time, if you read the Old Testament, there was a time where Tyre and Sidon had a good relationship with the nation of Israel. Solomon hired some of the people of Tyre and Sidon to help build the temple because they were excellent wood craftsmen. But there was a point in history, and Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel records this, when Tyre and Sidon see Israel in trouble, and in, and in their pride, and in their selfishness, they capitalize on that to take advantage of the nation of Israel. They saw Israel at a vulnerable place, and they say, you know what? Let's take the land. And what they did is they sold a number of the Israelites into slavery. They actually sold the children of Israel to other nations, and what they did was they took the money from that and spent it on grog and prostitutes. Just, just let that sink in. We would look at anyone like in that society today say that you would actually kidnap, and this happens in, in uh, the slave trade today, and the sexual slave trade, and it's awful, but people taking, selling children away as slaves, then taking the money that they received from that to spend it on booze, alcohol, and prostitutes. That's the nation of Sidon and Tyre. Pretty wicked, right? And that's why every time they come up in the Old Testament, there's this indictment on them. Now, don't miss this. You can't miss what he's saying. Jesus is talking, and again, the rebuke is on these Jewish cities, right? And he's saying, for rejecting the evidence of his miracles, for refusing to, re to turn to him as the Messiah, Chorazin and Bethsaida, these two Jewish cities, will suffer a more severe judgment than that of a traitorous, prostituting, slave-trading nation like Tyre and Sidon. Do you feel the weight of that? Look again at verse 21. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. See, Chorazin and Bethsaida were Jewish towns. And obviously, as we just learned, Tyre and Sidon were pagan cities. 
they're on the uh, north of them in the Mediterranean, on coastal towns. And these towns were pagan. Yet Jesus says that these pagan cities would have been persuaded and responded had they witnessed even half of the miracles that these Jewish towns did. Even the most vile would have responded and repented, unlike you guys. Now, I think there's a vital truth that we cannot miss. There's a vital truth here, friend, that we cannot miss, and that is this. People who have heard the gospel are accountable for it. Those of you who have heard the message of salvation and don't repent, you bring a greater judgment upon yourself. This happens in the Old Testament as well, where God tells his people, you've heard my word, now you're accountable for it. Jesus says, when you hear the gospel and you do not respond as you should, you bring judgment upon yourself. There's, those who've heard the message are accountable for it. So how then should we know if we're responding rightly? Your life will be marked by repentance, a turning away from sin and a turning to God. We cannot be properly related to God unless we turn toward him. Because in our natural state, we are separated from God and headed away from Him. Our sinful nature, as it were, bends us. The way we're born, our DNA as sinners, bends us away from God and from the things of God. Our life, by our nature, runs, flees from the things of God. This is why turning to Christ in repentance, chucking a Yui, as it were, turning to Christ in repentance is critical for salvation. Again, notice the following verse. Jesus moves on from his indictment to his verdict. You see that there in verse 22? Look at 22. I hope you can sense how serious and certain Jesus is about his judgment on those who refuse to, ret- to turn to him. Verse 22. And you, sorry, verse 22, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You see that there? But I tell you, or or you could use the word indeed, surely. He's saying there, this is is a solemn, solemn, legitimate uh, reality. Very solemn here. He's saying, I tell you, the day of judgment is coming. The day will happen when all humanity will appear before God and give an account. You that are listening right now, you will give an account. You will stand before God one day and you will give an account of what you have done with his son Jesus. And if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, as you've been following along, have you felt your need to turn to Christ. Perhaps you think this idea of God being a judge is is too negative. 
Or maybe you're hoping that when you die and you do stand before God, that he'll sort of just see your, your good intentions. You know, after all, you weren't as bad as some people. You did pray. You always had this belief in a higher power out there. You just weren't switched on for Jesus. But God will sort of look at that and say, oh, fair enough. I mean, you know, you weren't as bad as some of these other people. Now, listen, unless you repent and turn to Jesus, throwing all of your sin on him and getting all of his righteousness in return, there is no hope that on the day of judgment you will stand, friend. You will be judged. The fact that you've been raised in a Western culture as well, I just want to say this. We have, particularly in the English language, not because we're superior by any means, or not, but we have a plethora of so much gospel literature that's out there. There's some really bad stuff as well, but there's plenty of great opportunities to just hear clearly the gospel being proclaimed. And so I hope you can sort of see yourself in this text in that if that's you, and I'm talking to you, if you haven't re repented and turned to Christ, that you are actually heaping up, storing up, saving up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. I don't say that lightly. You're heaping up, storing up, saving up. L listen to what Romans 2 says. Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard, and I hope this is not you, friend, just listen, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That is a scary text. And I hope you can hear the gravity in it. You know, it's easy for us to look at those two towns, right? Chorazin and Bethsaida and say, wow, I mean, come on, you guys got to see Jesus firsthand. You got to see the miracles. I mean, of course Jesus is, you know, giving you a hard time. You didn't repent. But friend, where are you? Where are you? Have you turned to Christ for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life? Is this real for you? I want us to go back and look at one more town. Jesus now sets his crosshairs in just one more town and this one's a bit shocking, to be honest. It's a bit surprising. Because this was his home base of operations, actually. This is Capernaum. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Earlier in Matthew, he named Capernaum Jesus' own city. Again, his home base of operations. So this rebuke is closer to home. Especially when he compares Capernaum to that wicked city of the plains in Genesis. He turns up the volume by equating Capernaum. You know, that's a language there, that 
prideful? Will you be lifted up? It kind of sounds like Isaiah 14. You'll be lifted up? No, you'll be brought down. You won't be lifted up. I'm actually going to compare you with one of the wicked, most notorious cities of all time, Sodom. To the Jewish imagination, Sodom and Gomorrah evokes images of lust, scandal, and basically every catalog of sin happens there. A contemporary example, I guess, would be the Las Vegas Strip or schoolies during, uh, on the Gold Coast. These aren't exactly places of moral purity and a gathering for the worship of God. Such is the reputation of Sodom. And Jesus says, if you guys, listen, you've seen the miracles, but if the people of Sodom, even Sodom, had witnessed just a fraction of these miracles, they would have repented. But do you know what? At the end of the day, they're actually better off than you. When judgment comes, they're sitting in a better place than you are. <laughs> do you see that? Look at verse 24. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. There was enough evidence in his miracles for revival to break out in any one of these cities. For a mass turning to Christ. There, there, there was enough evidence there, but they seemed, particularly here in Capernaum, rather content to remain as they were. I was listening to a very thought-provoking sermon this week by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller talks about this idea of unbelief. Um, he explains how Jesus went into these three towns, as we're seeing, and gave the people all the evidence in the world that he was the Messiah. But they didn't believe. And he said, unbelief is not just a lack of something, it's the presence of something. Unbelief isn't from a lack of evidence or, or a lack of cogent arguments. Right? As Jesus went into these cities, he didn't say, just believe, just believe, just believe. What did he, what did he do? He performed these miracles. He overwhelmed them with evidence. Which means unbelief is not caused by a lack of evidence. Unbelief is the presence of something else. There is something, listen friend, there is something within our hearts that resists, fears, and even hates the message of Jesus. With the result that unbelief, again, it's not nothing, it's something, actually prevails over the evidence. In other words, unbelief itself swallows up the evidence and says, I'm still hungry. Unbelief is not the absence of faith. It's the presence of something else. You know, some people flatter themselves, saying, well, you know, look, the reason I'm not a Christian is because there's just not enough evidence. But in actual fact, 
It has more to do with their hard-heartedness. All the evidence is there. And really, what they, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They, they don't want to give their life over to Jesus, surrender to Jesus. They want to still live their own life. So as we look at these three cities, given their response, or lack thereof, I guess, one would think that Jesus would be kind of bummed out. Like, this seems like a flop, right? <laughs> this is where he spent the majority of his time. It seems like this, this, this whole thing is kind of a bummer. So you'd think that Jesus would be kind of sad, or that he'd be frustrated, but he's not. Look at verse 25. There's that, actually, he praises God. At this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So, the reason people reject Jesus, it's not actually based on a lack of evidence, it's a hard-heartedness. But you hear what Jesus is getting out there? There's actually a reason underneath all of that. Do you see that? We looked at the rejection, and now we turn to the reception. Again, I'll just read it just, just so you can see there. At this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. If the people rejected John and Jesus, if these three prominent Jewish cities refuse to repent, perhaps, again, you'd expect Jesus to complain. And he gives a, he gives a prayer. It's, like, it's actually praising God, and it's loud enough for everyone to hear it. And he says, when you look at those who receive me, and when you look at those who reject me, what's the bottom line difference? It doesn't have to do with their intelligence or their sophistication it hinges on the fact that God opens the eyes of those who believe. Later on in this book, Peter will confess the identity of Jesus in chapter 16. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. And he asks his disciples, he says, Who do people say that I am? And how does Peter answer? You are the Christ, the Messiah. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father. Same idea here. Do you see that? All things have been handed over to me. Verse 27, if you're following along. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Kind of, this kind of smells like the book of John at that moment, doesn't it? Kind of like a, a thunderbolt from John. That's what people say about this. But you, you get this idea, don't you? And then notice this beautiful invitation. And friend, I hope, those of you that are tuning in right now, I hope you feel this invitation. You know, we, we've, we've talked a lot about this idea of judgment and heaping up and storing up wrath. Or if you're an Australian, you might say wrath, right? I guess that's how you're supposed to say it is wrath. But look at this beautiful invitation in verse 28. In verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Look at that's just what he says in the next verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus gives a picture there of an ox. He would have a wooden bar that would go around its head as he's plowing a field. And Jesus acknowledges that many people trying to obey God on their own effort, particularly what the scribes and Pharisees has, have stacked on them, extra rules and regulations, are burdened, exhausted. He says, come to me then, take off that yoke, right? Give me the full weight of your sin and take on my righteousness. Jesus is stronger than we are. Jesus has obeyed on our behalf. And notice it doesn't stop there. Notice verse 29. Can you, can you see that? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He gives us the ability to obey. Do you notice that? It, the gospel is glorious in that all of my wickedness, all of my sin, gets handed over, and all of Jesus' righteousness is given to me. But it doesn't stop there. I am now yoked with Jesus, obeying. Believers are in the yoke with Jesus, and the one who calls us to righteous living is the one who enables us to do so. The one who beckons us to trust the Father is also the one who enables us to trust the Father. Take Jesus' yoke upon you. Friend, I don't know where you are at spiritually. But I pray that you wouldn't let another moment go by where you are saving up. You, you know, the, the, the illustration of saving up, storing up with the markets plunging, stock markets, you, you, you feel even a little bit of this on the economic level, don't you? But on a much greater, 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 for eternity, if you don't turn to Christ today, you are storing up, saving up eternal judgment on yourself. But, but do you see how much better this is where Jesus says, you don't have to do that. Take my yoke upon me. You know, there's this idea for many that haven't become Christians, or, or maybe they thought, maybe right now, they even think that they're Christians because maybe their family members are Christians, or they grew up in church, or they have some association with God or the Bible, being in the West. And none of those things will save you ultimately. And there's this idea that if, if you know, maybe if you turn to God, your life would be boring, your life would be predictable and dull, and, and there's this idea where it, just, it would be difficult to follow God. No, do you see what Jesus is saying? Take my yoke. You're yoked with the Messiah. When I first became a Christian in 1998, I, I, had, I wanted to share this message with everyone. Not to say, you know, if you're going to be a Christian, just roll up your sleeves. You know, it's, it's about you can't cuss, chew, or hang with girls or do. It's not, that's not the gospel. I wanted to know God who created me, 
who orders everything in this world that's happening right now. And there was such a delight to worship, to know, to follow, to obey God. It wasn't, I didn't feel ever like I was rolling up my sleeves. It was just a knee-jerk reaction because of his grace that has been given to me, that I was yoked now with Jesus. So friend, I, I hope that you can feel this sense of urgency and that you're actually, listen, you are missing out if you haven't turned to Christ. That's not, you know, they don't pay me to say that. God is more satisfying than any experience you've ever had in this world. He's created you. He knows you. He knows exactly what you're thinking right now, even the doubts that you have. Turn to him. Trust him. Come to Jesus right now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful. And we pray, Lord, that no one listening to this would be able just to keep putting this off, Lord, but they would feel the weight of what it says. Lord, that they would, wouldn't be duped, wouldn't be tricked into thinking that being a Christian means just living a frustrating life, trying to roll up your sleeves and serve God or, or be a good person. Some kind of big self-improvement religion. Help them to see just the ridiculousness in all of that and help them to see the cross. Pray, Lord, that you would work even this week. Help us as a church to reach out to each other, to be able to connect via text, FaceTime, all of the other avenues that are out there. And may we continue to build our church during this time. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.